Well, good morning. I hope you've had your coffee, because we're going to start with some logic, okay? <laughs> In the field of logic, two events that are considered to be mutually exclusive are two things that cannot both occur at the same time. It's not that complex, really. I mean, here's what I'm talking about. You flip a coin. And if you flip a coin, it's going to come up either heads or tails. But it can't come up heads and tails. Uh, you know, in the real world, a coin can't land on its edge. If it's heads, then it isn't tails. If it's tails, it isn't hand. heads. It can't be two mutually exclusive things at once. If I choose option A, I cannot then also not choose option A. If I have a choice between two opposite things, then no matter how torn I might be, no matter how much waffling I might do in the midst of making that decision, if option A and option B are mutually exclusive, then I cannot choose both of them. And when I make that choice, then I get the results of that choice. Unless, of course, some other events take place that intervene between my choice and its consequences. Choice and consequence. That's basic logic. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in our passage in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now, before we begin to take a look at, at this morning's passage, let's remember that what we're reading is the second half of a much longer passage we began looking at last week that describes for us the flagrant sin of Eli the high priest and his worthless sons. Now, I didn't call them worthless. Scripture calls them worthless. Uh, verse, two, uh, verse 12, if you remember, put it this way. Eli's sons were wicked men. They did not respect the Lord. Uh, you see, what they were doing is they were taking for themselves uh, that which the people were offering to God in worship, and they were abusing their position of power by sleeping with women who were seeking to serve there at the tabernacle. And so Hophni and Phinehas, these two men, these two sons of Eli, they were disobeying and dishonoring God in order to get for themselves that which they lusted after. And their father Eli, he saw what they did, but he did not do anything to stop them. Now, it's tragic, isn't it? When those who are supposed to be leading and setting the example in regard to holiness and justice, when they instead become the main perpetrators of evil, that's tragic. But that's how it was. That's how it was. Those who were in charge of the worship of God were wicked, uncaring, even predatory. But as bad as things were, don't lose hope. It isn't all darkness. There was still a reason to hope. Remember young Samuel. Young Samuel, though he was only a child, he was faithfully serving God there at that same tabernacle. And the Lord was teaching him and was preparing him to be God's man and to represent God to the people and to lead the people into the very presence of the Lord. And then there were Samuel's parents, Elkanah and Hannah. 
and others like them who, despite the corruption of the priests, continued to come to the tabernacle to worship God. And people who had surrendered to the Lord the very things that they wanted and were content to wait upon the Lord and upon his timing instead of striving to get for themselves what their hearts desired. Remember as well that this section, as dark as it is, is sandwiched by two beautiful gems. There, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 11, and then the first verse of chapter 3, both of which say basically the same thing, that the boy Samuel served the Lord. Amidst all this evil, amidst all the darkness, amidst all that was going on, Samuel, a mere child, was serving the Lord. Uh, the evil that we looked at last week and that we'll see again as we continue on today, what well, we've got to remember, it is only the backdrop. It is only the backdrop to what God is doing with and through and in Samuel. It is the faithfulness of God amidst this rebellion. It is the goodness of God amidst the evil that was taking place that is the focus and the point of all that is written here. That's a perspective that it would be good for us to remember, especially in our day, because it's true today as well. Amidst all the evil going on in our world, amidst all the, uh, the powerful and corrupt forces that seem to be winning the day again and again. You and I, we have got to remember. We've got to keep our eyes on the Lord in the midst of it all. And, and we've got to remember that those things are merely the backdrop, the contrasting background to all the good that the Lord is doing, including within and through us even in the midst of pervasive and overwhelming evil, you and I, we need to keep our eyes on the good things that God is doing. And we need to choose to align ourselves with that good rather than allowing ourselves to be sucked into the <laughs> vortex of evil. Well, with that in mind, let's get started. Grab your Bibles. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. I will read our passage for us. We're going to begin in verse 27, continue through 36. I'm going to invite you to stand with me uh, as I read, and I encourage you to follow along in your own Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 27. It says, A man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Didn't I reveal myself to your forefathers' family when they were in Egypt and belonged to Pharaoh's palace? Out of all the tribes of Israel, I chose your house to be my priests, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense and to wear the ephod in my presence. I also gave your forefathers' family all the Israelite food offerings. Why then do all of you despise my sacrifices and offerings that I require at the place of worship? You have honored your sons more than me by making yourselves fat with the best part of all the offerings of my people Israel. Therefore, this is the declaration of the Lord, the God of Israel. I did say that your family and your forefathers' family would walk before me forever. But now, this is the Lord's declaration, no longer. For those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disgraced. 
look, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your forefather's family so that none of your family will reach old age. You will see distress in the place of worship in spite of all that is good in Israel. And no one in your family will ever again reach old age. Any man from your family I do not cut off from my altar will bring, bring grief and sadness to you. All your descendants will die violently. This will be the sign that will come to you. Concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, both of them will die on the same day. Then I will raise up a faithful priest for myself. He will do whatever it is in my heart and mind. I will establish a lasting dynasty for him, and he will walk before my anointed one for all time. Anyone who is left in your family will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. He will say, Please appoint me to some priestly office so that I can have a piece of bread to eat. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take uh, what happened so long ago, what you recorded for us to learn from, Lord, and you'd help us not only to comprehend it, but I pray that you would give us minds that are willing and receptive to hear what you would say to us and hearts that are pliable and willing, Lord, to be changed. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to, uh, to see the reality uh, that, you, uh, that you are laying bare here. Lord, I pray that we would see our own hearts, that we would see your goodness and faithfulness. And Lord, that we'd be changed by it. Impact us this morning. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen be seated. Choices have consequences, don't they? <laughs> Some choices, though they seem attractive in the moment, which is why we are tempted to embrace them, also have consequences that are horrific. In 1 Samuel 2, we see Eli and his wicked sons, well, they choose to turn away from God. And instead of living their lives to honor God, they live their lives to fulfill their own passions. And despite the, uh, the grace that God has poured out on them, the many blessings he has given them, uh, they turn away from God. They end up forfeiting all of the grace and blessings that God has poured out on their family, and they end up incurring the wrath of God. If you remember what we read last week in verse 22, it says that Eli heard about everything that his sons were doing. He, Eli heard that they were uh, defiling the worship of God by taking the sacrifices for themselves and how they were sleeping with the women who served at the tent of meeting. Well, Eli heard what they were doing, but he didn't do anything about what they were doing. He didn't address their sin. And he had a responsibility to take care of that. I mean, he was their father, but he was also the high priest. He should have done a horrific thing. He should have brought about the punishment that was established by God's word for defiling God's sacrifices and for the sexual sin that they were committing. Hophni and Phinehas should have been taken outside of the camp and they should have been stoned to death. Now, that may seem radical to us, I am betting it didn't seem radical to those who were being victimized by these men. But Eli didn't do it. They were doing what was wrong. They were, they were absolutely destroying lives. They were defiling the worship of God. 
and doing far worse to these women who are just seeking to serve at the temple. And yet, Eli did nothing. But God's different than Eli. Aren't you glad for that? Yeah. Yeah, our God is perfectly just. And so he was not content to let injustice go. And so God was going to bring justice. God would execute righteous judgment against Eli and his sons that Eli had failed to bring. Uh, but all isn't dark. Uh, remember, even in the midst of all that darkness, uh, verse 26, the final verse from last week's passage, uh, by contrast, in contrast to all of that, the boy Samuel grew in stature and favor with the Lord and with the people. So despite the, the horrific circumstances that he was growing up in, despite the absolutely dastardly example that was being set for this little guy, Samuel chose to do what was right. He chose to do what was right. He chose to live in such a way uh, that he would meet with God's approval, that he would be a blessing to those around him, and that he would give honor and respect to the name of God. It makes me think of uh, what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8.21. There Paul is explaining how and why he and his associates behaved amongst the Corinthians when he came to visit them. Uh, there uh, Paul says this, that they gave careful thought in order to do what was right, and not only before the Lord, but also before the people. I think, oh, man, there's a good guiding principle for us, huh? that we would take careful thought to make sure that the way that we are living is honoring to the Lord and a blessing to those around us. And why would we do that? Well, because we represent Christ, that, that we are living our lives as his ambassadors. We live in the midst of a depraved culture, don't we? And more so all the time. You know, the... I, I love following the Babylon Bee. My problem is this. These days, it's hard to tell the difference between satire and the real news. <laughs> Stuff that you think, oh, the Babylon Bee must have ridden this. They must have made this up. No one would be stupid enough to do that. Oh, no, no, no. That's our government. Yeah, that, that, no, that, that's us. That's our culture. We're actually doing these things that, that seem preposterous. We live in the midst of a depraved culture. And we have bad examples all around us, don't we? And we have leaders who fail within the church, within the government, within the community on a regular basis. But let's just remember, that's no excuse. That's no excuse. We can still, like Samuel, choose to do what's right. Even if, like little Samuel, we stand alone, we can choose to do what's right. Even if, like little Samuel, we feel that we are as powerless as a child amongst men, we can choose to do what's right. We've got to choose to live our lives seeking to honor God rather than to serve ourselves. Here's why. Look at verse 27, first verse of our passage for this morning. It says, a man of God came to Eli and said, this is what the Lord says. Didn't I reveal myself 
to your forefather's family when they were in Egypt and belonged to Pharaoh's palace. Okay, so he's taking us way back here. But before we begin to look at what he says about how it is that Eli ended up with this position, let's be reminded just by the mere presence of this man of God that Samuel isn't alone. He isn't the only one who is seeking to do what's right. Yes, he is surrounded by carnal, worthless men, Eli, Hophni, Phinehas. And though he may feel like he's alone, he isn't alone. He isn't the only one who's seeking to honor God. There is this nameless man of God as well. You know, it's easy to begin to feel like we're the only ones, isn't it? At work, at school, in the midst of the community, it's easy to begin to feel like we're the only ones who are trying to honor God. Remember Elijah? Elijah felt like that. He began to whine to God about the fact that he was the last one who loved him and honored him. And that was when the Lord in 1 Kings 19, 18 uh, reminded Elijah that he had 7,000 in Israel who had not yet bowed their knees to Baal. We're never alone. Here as young Samuel grows, God sends him this unnamed man of God to address the issues with, within Eli and Hophni and Phinehas and, and to remind him, keep going because you're not alone. It's not just you. Well, here's where the man of God starts. He says to Eli, God's been treating you with undeserved grace and kindness since before you were even born. He says this, God chose to reveal himself to your ancestors. Uh, clear back when they were slaves in Egypt. Look at verse 28. He says, and out of all the tribes of Israel, I chose your house to be my priests, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod in my presence. And I gave your forefather's family all the Israelite food offerings. And so what, what the man of God is saying to Eli says, listen, even before you were born, God was kind to you by choosing your ancestor, by choosing the, the Levites, the tribe of Levi, uh, which is the, the family line that Eli and his sons were in. I chose them to be my priests. You didn't deserve this. You didn't earn this. You were born into this by the grace and the, and the kindness of God. Uh, this privilege uh, that God gave him to be a priest, it, it was a gift from God. They were the ones to offer the sacrifices. Think about that. Think about what that meant. What a, what a position of honor that was. What an amazing thing that must have been to be the priest who would facilitate uh, this, this thing that would restore fellowship between God and his people. They were the ones who burnt the incense there in the tabernacle. And the, the incense being a picture of prayers being offered to God and more significantly heard and received by God himself. And they wore the ephod. Remember last week we talked about that. It was a reminder of their role as they were going to God on behalf of the people. And then they were leading the people themselves into God's presence. 
God had even given them a part of his sacrifices. God had assigned to the priests a portion of each sacrifice that would belong to them, that would feed their families. And so as people came to worship God, a part of the sacrifice went home with the worshiper, a part of it was burnt upon the altar, given to God, and a part of it was was taken by the priests to meet their needs as well. The man of God is saying to Eli, do you realize all that God has done for you? Do you realize that it is by his grace and his mercy and his kindness that he has given you this this tremendous honor of doing what it is that you get to do? I think certainly Eli Hoffnius, Hoffnius, that's a a, a conglomeration of Hoffney and Phineas together. They did not appreciate what an honor it was. And honestly, probably we don't either. I mean, stop and think about it for a minute. How unthinkable is it that any of us would ever get to be a part of what God is doing? We would get to come alongside God Almighty. We would get to be used by him. We would get to be there in the midst of what he is doing as he redeems his people, as he forgives and cleanses them. And what an amazing thing is it for you or for me to be able to be there when someone gets saved, uh, when when God draws them to himself and they come to a place of, uh, of surrender to the Lord. They experience forgiveness, cleansing. For the first time in their life, they come back into a place of fellowship with God. How amazing is it that God could use you or me to do that? You or me, who we ourselves are are in constant need of his cleansing, who had to be redeemed by him, who have been forgiven by him, who are daily drawn close to him, not by our goodness or by our merit, but by his kindness and forgiveness. How amazing is it that he allows us to minister to each other? That should blow our minds. We should understand what an honor that is. Well, in light of all that the Lord did for them, the the man of God then simply turns and asks on behalf of God. He says to Eli, why then? Why? In light of all that, why do you despise God's sacrifices and offerings that are required at the place of worship? That's what was going on. That's what his sons were doing. They were treating people's sacrifices, not as an act of worship of God, uh, but as an opportunity for them to simply fill their own bellies. You see, they were not taking their assigned portion of the sacrifice, but rather they were taking God's part of the sacrifice for themselves. Uh, Look part with you, verse 29. You have honored your sons more than me, he says to Eli, by making yourselves fat, with the best part of all the offerings of my people Israel. They were taking literally the fat parts and they were literally uh, eating the fat and it was making them fat. I think metaphorically and probably physically, 
the part that was supposed to be burned up upon the altar, they were taking for themselves. They were disrespecting God and dishonoring God by robbing God and taking the portion of the sacrifice that was offered to God and devouring it themselves. And Eli, Eli the high priest, he did nothing about it because he honored his sons more than he honored God. And just so you know, that's not good parenting. Parents, understand this. The best that you will ever be for your kids is when you most fully give yourselves over to honoring and to submitting yourself to the Lord. It never does your kids good when you put them above the Lord. It always does your kids good when you honor God more than you would honor them. You and I, we become our best as a parent, as a spouse, as a child, as a friend, as whatever, when we are most submitted to Christ. Because it is in that moment that we become most disconnected from our all-too-natural selfish ambition and vain conceit. Christ is always to be our highest and our first love. Think of how Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 10, there in verse 37. And let his words shock you. Don't, don't write them off. He means what he says here. He says, the one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And hear this, parents. One who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Understand this. Understand this, because it is a very natural desire to love our kids more, isn't it? It is a very natural thing. But before we can ever become the parent or the child or the spouse that God wants us to be, we must fully comprehend that the core of our identity is being a child of God ourselves. We must first fully belong to the Lord before we can effectively give ourselves to being a parent or a child or a spouse or a friend to anyone else. The only way that I can become the dad or the husband or the friend or the pastor that God wants me to be is as I more and more each day, more and more fully surrender myself to the Lord and rely upon him and allow him uh, to, uh, to fill me with his spirit and, and that I would find my identity and my purpose in him and not in fulfilling any of those roles. If I try to find my purpose and identity in being a husband or being a dad or being a pastor, I will fall far short. It is only in finding my identity as a child of God that I get filled up, that I get equipped, that I get empowered to be able to do the things that he's called me to do and to love others with the love that I can only get from him. Well, Eli didn't choose 
that option. Eli chose instead to honor his sons more than he honored the Lord. And so in verse 30, uh, we read, Therefore, this is the declaration of the Lord, the God of Israel. Uh, I did say that your family and your forefather's family would walk before me forever. So uh, clear back in Exodus chapter 28, there in verse 1, uh, we read that God chose Aaron's family. Aaron was part of the tribe of Levi, the Levites. And God chose Aaron and his sons, his family, to become the priests who would lead the people in worship. God told Moses, have your brother Aaron and his sons come to you from the Israelites to serve me as priest. And so Eli and his sons, they were descendants of one of Aaron's sons. And so they had that role of being priests. But now look at the rest of verse 30. But now this is the Lord's declaration. No longer. Not for you anymore, Eli. It says, those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disgraced. Now, understand, God did not break a promise here. God made this promise to Aaron. And he keeps that promise to Aaron. He just shifts it away from Eli's part of the family and it shifts the privilege over to one of Aaron's other's descendants. Okay, does that make sense to you? And why did he do that? Because Eli and his boys were refusing to honor God. They would not respect God and so God would not honor them. You know, they probably looked like they were honoring God. They probably said all of the right things, but it was their actions. It was their decisions. It was their choices that were the problem. And again, I think it's a good thing for us to stop and to consider that dynamic. It isn't so much the things that we say, but the things that we do and the decisions we make and the choices we make that show whether or not we truly honor the Lord. You know, really, quite honestly, as a Christian, um, if a non-Christian looks at your life, it, it ought to leave them scratching their head. They ought to look at you and think, these people are crazy. They're nuts. It, it, they ought to look at our lives, and, and it should make no sense to them. Because our lives should be, in every facet, taking God into, an, into account. And as an unbeliever looks at your life, they, they don't take the Lord into account. So they look at how you live, live and they think, what are they doing? Why would they do things that way? That ought to be the response of the unbeliever as they look at our lives. Because our lives should be built not to please and to benefit and to honor ourselves, but our lives should be built in order to please and honor and benefit the Lord. Think about this. When you take your life and spend it how you want to spend it, aren't you taking something that doesn't belong to you? You didn't give life to yourself. Even your parents, though they may claim it, they didn't make you. They did not give you life in the sense that God gives us life. God is the one who breathes life into us. As scripture tells us that he is also the one who sustains us. 
and, and causes us to continue to draw air and to have hearts that beat. And if you've put your faith in Christ, he has also given you new life, hasn't he? He has redeemed you at great cost. And so really our lives, very clearly, they don't belong to us. They're on loan to us from God. And so when we take our lives and, and we begin to spend them upon ourselves, are we not doing what Hophni and Phinehas were doing with the sacrifices of the people? Are we not taking that which belongs to God, that which is his part, and, and, and consuming them for ourselves rather than offering them to God? Think about what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 11, there in verse 36. He, he says this, he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. You know, we read verses like that and we just, it, it seems like we just kind of skip right over them. We just move right on past them. But think about what he is saying here. And let's begin with, with the end of that first sentence. He says, all things, all things. That would include us, okay? All is a fairly inclusive word. All things would include you and it would include me. So all things are from him. He's created us, hasn't he? We didn't create ourselves. He made us. And all things are through him. He sustains us. He sustains us. He has given us life and he sustains our life. And all things are to him. They are to his glory, for his glory, for his pleasure. And Paul concludes it there. He says, to him be the glory forever. So if we take our lives and we begin to live with them for ourselves, seeking our own pleasure, our own agenda. Are we not, uh, just like Hophni and Phinehas, living in rebellion against God? Are we not doing just what they did? Are we not despising God the way that they did? The God who gave us life simply that we might live in fellowship with him? You and I were to live the way that Paul describes just a few verses later in Romans. In Romans 12, uh, verse 1, where he says this, we are to live our lives presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. What a great picture. That, that we're to live out our lives as an act of worship of God. <laughs> Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, they did not choose any of that. They chose apps, actually the, the, the polar opposite. Uh, so look, verse 31, look, the days are coming. This is what God says. I will cut off your strength and the strength of your forefather's family so that none of your family will reach old age. Uh, you will see distress in the place of worship in spite of all that is good in Israel. And no one in your family will ever again reach old age. Any man from your family I do not cut off from my altar will bring grief and sadness to you and all your descendants will die violently. Wow. Now, none of this is going to happen immediately in the moment, and that's why he says here, the days are coming. 
But the Lord is going to judge Eli's line, his his family. They are no longer going to be able to serve as priests. They are no longer going to experience God's protective hand. Now think about this. They didn't earn this. This wasn't justice for them. This was God's mercy, his shielding hand that protected them, that gave them long life and and kept them secure from violence. What God is saying is, I'm going to remove that hand that has been shielding you. In the end, many of Eli's descendants would be slaughtered at the hand of King Saul's man, Doeg. Remember that? David had come to the high priest. He'd come to the tabernacle and they had aided David. And so in revenge against that, Saul ordered Doeg to go and to slaughter the priests. The only one to survive that was a man by the name of Abiathar. He became the high priest. He was Eli's last surviving descendant who served as a priest. Well, he ended up being fired from the job of high priest by King Solomon. He was replaced by a man by the name of Zadok, who was from another part of Aaron's family. Remember this, all part of Aaron's family, but no longer Eli's line, but now a new line would serve as the high priest uh, from the family of Zadok. And so Eli's dynasty ends Now, some of you might be a little concerned because maybe you're reading this and you're thinking, well, wait a minute. God removed Eli's descendants for stuff that Eli did. He punished them for his sin. Uh, But understand this. Remember this. No one, neither Eli nor the man who replaced him, nor any of his descendants could ever earn or deserve or have it be justice for them to fulfill this role. This is all a thing of grace. It was just as gracious to, uh, for God to have Zadok serving as a high priest as it was for him to have Eli serving as high priest. God's favor in this sense is his to give and it is also his to withhold. None of us deserve it. None of us have that as our right or as what is just. Well, because the consequence of Eli's sin wasn't coming immediately, and we read in verse 34, the man of God says this, this will be the sign that will come to you. Concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, both of them will die on the same day. And we're going to read about that when we get to chapter 4. We'll leave that until then. Suffice for now to know this. It happened. God did exactly what he said that he would do. And he didn't stop there. Uh, look at verse 35. He says, then I will raise up a faithful priest for myself. It isn't enough to, uh, to punish the wickedness, but God is going to restore. He's going to bring goodness back. He's going to do something good. I will raise up a faithful priest for myself and he will do whatever is in my heart and mind. And I will establish a lasting dynasty for him. And he will walk before my anointed one for all time. Now, uh, you look at that, and maybe you initially think of Samuel, uh, the young man who is serving there in the temple, who becomes a faithful priest. Uh, But I don't think that this is talking about Samuel, because it says that God will establish a lasting dynasty for him. And 
The sad truth is Samuel's sons were as bad as Eli's sons. He did not have a lasting dynasty following him. Uh, perhaps this is pointing even further ahead to Zadok and to, to his line. Zadok, who in, in Solomon's day would eventually fulfill that role of high priest and would be a faithful high priest. Uh, maybe. Uh, in the end, though, I don't think his line proved to be faithful either. Regardless, what the Lord is saying here to Eli and to us is that God would not be satisfied until one who was truly faithful was serving in that role. And who would that be? Well, of course, that would be Jesus. Jesus is our ultimate high priest. He is the one who is truly faithful. As Hebrews 7.25 says, he is the one who is able to save completely those who come to God through him. He can not only just represent us to God and represent God to us, but he can save us. He can actually do the restoration. He can actually be the one who redeems us and brings us back into right relationship with God. He is the only and the truly faithful high priest. He is the only one who can truly restore us into right relationship with God. And he has, hasn't he? That is what he's done for us. He has redeemed us and he has called us as well to live our lives as priests. Now, think about this for a moment. Think about what 1 Peter 2.9 says to us. There Peter writes, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are a royal priesthood, he says, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, to belong to God. Uh, this is why he has called your name. This is why he has redeemed you. Uh, this is why he has saved you. He has cleansed you and he has equipped you. It is so that you might be his possession. You might belong to him and so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is our task. This is our calling. This is what he has given us to do. We are to be those who are, are to go about proclaiming how excellent the one who pulled us out of darkness and into his light is. Well, we don't point to ourselves other than to say, man, what a mess I have been and how he's rescued me. Let me tell you how wonderful my Savior is. Let me tell you how wonderful the one is, the, the, how merciful, how kind, how forgiving the one is who forgave me. I didn't deserve any of it. I, I didn't earn any of it. It was his wonder. It is his mercy. It is his kindness. It is his holiness. It's all about him. And, and my job in life is to point you to him and to lead you to him, representing him to you and bringing you into his very presence because I'm, I'm called to be a priest. But I, I don't mean that I'm called to be a priest. I mean each and every last one of us. That is the call that God has put upon each of us to go into this world representing him to the people that are around us and bringing them with us as we come into his very presence. You and I, we are to live as faithful priests seeking God's glory, seeking 
for God to be honored in how we live and what we do, seeking for God's kingdom to be built in how we expend ourselves. We are to be those who represent him by the way that we live out our lives here upon this earth, much as Samuel was doing in his day. And we're to do it even though there are a lot of bad examples around. Even though uh, we live in a world that is a hot mess, yet we can choose. We can choose to live for Christ and to no longer live for self. We can choose the life that Paul talks about in Galatians 2.20 where he says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live. Paul says, I'm dead. I, I am dead and it's no longer me living in this body but it's Christ living through me. I don't live for me. It's not about me. But now I'm to live pursuing what Christ wants to pursue. He says, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. And that last part, that answers the question why we would ever do this, doesn't it? I mean, think about this. This is a big ask. This is not a small thing. What scripture is, is calling us to is to give up the only life that we have. You ever kind of freak yourself out thinking about life and eternity and death and all of that stuff? This is it. This life that we have, this breath that we draw, this is all we've got. This is all we've got. And what scripture calls us to is to give it up. To give it up, surrender it to the one who has promised us so much more. He has promised us eternal life with him in heaven. Why would we be willing to do that? Well, it's because he has proven us that he is trustworthy. We'd be willing to do it because of the cross. We'd be willing because our Savior paid the penalty for our sin upon the cross. As Paul puts it to the Corinthians, that he who knew no sin, he who was perfect, who was sinless, who was absolutely holy, was willing to take my sin upon himself to the extent that what Paul says is not that he took my sin, but he became sin. He owned my sin so that I wouldn't have to. And then it says something that my mind cannot comprehend. It says, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Me. You. How ridiculous is that? The mess that we are, the broken people that we are, and yet because of the cross, because of what our Savior has done, you and I, no longer saddled with guilt and shame, no longer condemned rightly, but now forgiven, cleansed, filled with his love. That's why. 
That's why we would be willing to live no longer for self, but now for Christ. I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to close our time with an opportunity for you to consider these things, to reflect upon what the Savior has done for you. Right before Jesus went to the cross, he, he met with his disciples. And as they were celebrating the Passover dinner together, he did something different. He did something non-traditional. He did something that caught their attention because it was different. And in the midst of the dinner, he took some of the bread. And he says, it says that he took the bread and he gave it to them and he said, take and eat this. This is my body given for you. I think that night that they must have been confused by what he said, but it all... It all had to have come together for them later. That what he was pointing to was the fact that he was going to become their sacrifice. That he was going to bear the penalty for their sin on their behalf. That he who knew no sin would become sin. Later that same night as they were finishing the dinner, he took the cup. He passed it around to them and said, take and drink this. This is the new promise of my blood. His blood. His life. His life being sacrificed in our place. And he said, it's a promise. The promise of what? The forgiveness of your sin. It's the promise that you are forgiven. You have been purchased. You have been forgiven. You have been cleansed from sin by Christ. That's what he wanted us to remember. He told his disciples, as often as you gather, I want you to do this, to remember. To remember what I've done. To remember how this works. And that's our whole purpose here today. As we return to a time of worship, as the team is leading us in song, you're going to be invited. If you belong to Jesus, you can come to the table. There's one in the back. There are two on each side in the front. And grab a pair of the cups. Uh, in the bottom cup, there, there's a little nugget of bread. In the top cup, just a, a little drink of juice. And to take time between you and the Lord and to remember what it is that he has done for you. That it, it was for you that his body was offered as a sacrifice. It was for you that his blood was poured out for the cleansing of your sin. And let's remember. Let's remember and let's thank him and let's worship him. And let's go out living lives of worship of the Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. God, you are so gracious, so so kind to us. We, we love you, Lord. We ask, Lord, that, that you would help our minds to, to comprehend, that you would help our hearts to embrace what it is that you have said to us, and Lord, that we would be changed by it. God, I pray that as, as we enter into this time, God, that you would give us focused minds and calm hearts to be able to reflect upon be able to worship you for all that you have done. We thank you. We praise you. We pray it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.